Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we're analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. I'm Kyle Crane, and today we're going to be talking about Minute number 47, which begins with Hicks asking the scruffy-looking Newt to come out and ends with Ripley entering the little girl's lair. And yeah, that's Kyle Crane back again today. Thanks for coming back, Kyle. Uh, Thanks for having me, John. And once again, we have Genevieve Kosky from The Next Picture Show with us. Thanks for coming back, Genevieve. Of course. All right, guys, guess what? This is the biggest minute in the movie to me. The biggest one. <laughs> Why the is most that? important minute. Well, we're going to get to that. I don't know if okay. I should say it right up front. Let's tease it a little bit. But <laughs> I have often, there's been many a bar room you know, over a beer conversation I've had with people who looked at me funny about the fact that I get so excited about this particular moment in this movie. But we'll see what you guys think and, and we'll see what the audience thinks. But I guess we should just move forward, and uh, we're we're still got Hicks grabbing for Newt. We've got Ripley trying to appease Newt, and we've got Newt still being extremely trepidatious about uh, these new people that she's meeting. So um, I did want to point out something I was going to maybe mention in the last minute, but I guess it's more in context with the things I want to say about this minute, is that when we get Newt, when we get that jump scare, when we get the Hicks stopping Drake from shooting Newt moment, and we have Hicks call for Ripley to come over and check out Newt or whatever it is that they just saw. It's kind of the first little notion of Ripley finally emerging from her shell to me. Yeah. And I've been saying all along, you know, for the past 46 minutes, that Ripley is still waking up. That we we don't have the Ripley that we know from Alien yet. That it's taking her a while. She's groggy from 57 years of cryosleep. She's a fish out of water and a woman out of time. She's got a nightmare plaguing her. All these things that have made Ripley uh, uh, retreat into this shell that I feel like she's been in for the movie. But the emergence of Newt here seems to have woken her up a little bit. Would you guys agree? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, this is I've heard the argument made a lot of times that uh, this is the film where Ripley becomes a character that she was just kind of an archetype in Alien. Uh, But I think that I think you're right that this does give her a lot of personality and character. And I would continue to read back into that, you know, director's cut where she's lost a child and she's looking to uh, kind of gain that back throughout this film. But it does also work as her. Uh, it, it just exploring her, human, her humanity and finding another person, you know, like Genevieve said yesterday, you know, is, a, is another survivor and making that connection there. But yeah, up until this point, we don't really get to see the caring, nurturing side of Ripley. And we also get to see her like leap into action for the for the first time here. Like she dives into the, the vent after after Newt. Um, and, you know, that's something that she will continue to do throughout this movie is barrel forward where, where others hesitate. Yeah, so that's the, that's the moment, of course. Um, but there's a there's even a more specific moment I want to talk about as being the, the big, like as far as the micro 
second of the movie, I think, where the whole thing shifts, where Ripley as a character shifts, and therefore the whole movie shifts because it's her movie. And it's that moment where, you know, in the last minute and, and then bleeding into this minute, well, actually, really, I guess it's more in this minute, as Newt starts to scramble around under the grating and they can't quite locate her and they're flashing the flashlight around. We're getting that camera back again, right? Where it's even more frenetic, handheld, maybe it might be steady cam, but they're actually making it a little bit more frenetic even than that uh, usually looks. And we're getting Ripley. She's a little out of control, but she's starting to take control of the situation by being the one that actually starts barking orders, right? So she's barking orders at everyone. She's telling them where to flash the flashlight. She's telling them not to let her get away. And then comes the moment where nobody else, all these so-called men of action that are in the scene are dumbfounded as to what to do. Newt dives into that vent and everybody just goes, duh, like that. <laughs> and Ripley goes, fuck this. And she grabs that flashlight. And to me, it's that moment when she grabs that flashlight. That's your hinge in the movie. She snaps at it in the sound design. Again, we're back to image and sound, the marriage of it and how good the sound design is. It's a big, loud snatch of the flashlight. And that's the moment where Ripley totally wakes up to me. And like you said, Genevieve, now she's going to dive into action. She, it even says in the script, I'm just going to go ahead and read this excerpt from the script real quick. It says, in his bulky armor, Hicks knows he'll never make it into the tiny duct. Ripley dives. She squirms into the duct without thinking. And I think that's exactly it. I think we're now, we have our Ripley. We have our, our, our person of action, person that can take charge when, when the time has come to take charge. And she doesn't need to think it through. She's just, that's her. And now, now we have her. She's out of the shell. The shell is left behind. She shed that. And once she's in that duct and then makes her way into... Newt's lair, that's where Ripley really begins. And like you said, Kyle, it's interesting. I mean, I don't think that Ripley in Alien is not a character, but you're right. I think I agree with people when they say that she becomes the character that we know as Ripley here. The same way that Indiana Jones, I was on the Indiana Jones Minute podcast recently where I said that in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, when he approaches, uh, when he enters into the mine where all the children are being kept as slaves, and they do that, Spielberg does that great push into him and that low angle hero shot. Yeah. That's actually where what most people think of Indiana Jones as that hero character begins. Because he's not that hero character in Raiders of the Lost Ark ever. So this is kind of the same moment and maybe done even more, uh, clearly more subtly. But that's my wild theory about <laughs> Ripley as a character. The snatching of the flashlight to me is the most important moment in this entire movie. I mean, I, I definitely get behind that, that reading, you know. I, I don't know that I would necessarily boil it down to the flashlight specifically, but now that you have pointed out kind of the sound design element of that as well, uh, it definitely, it scans. I buy it. <laughs> cool. Thanks. I just, it's, it's something, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's the moment of this movie that made me want to even do this show. Like there was, Alien as a movie itself made me want to do that show. This one, it took some convincing. I had to kind of convince myself that I wanted to do Aliens. Not that I don't love the movie. It was, what is it about it that I want to dig deeper into? And, and what it is is Ripley. And the fact that she does become such a well-rounded character. And, and Scorting Weaver gives this amazing uh, performance in this. And there's this particular moment where I always get a little chill at that character moment. And it's not that the flashlight part, as I read there, it's not in the script. I wondered how I wonder how they came up with that in the blocking and then in, in the sound design. It feels like a moment that everybody sort of felt like we need this 
um, kind of exclamation point to this moment. We need this this point where we're making it very clear. It's right center frame. It's in the the flashlight's in the forefront. Her hand reaches out and grabs it, and to me, it feels very distinct as a big moment. But like I said, I might be a little bit overstating it. <laughs> That's just how I feel about it. Well, no, I, and I, I think it's a great reading of it. And your comparison to Temple of Doom is fantastic because that was a movie that was created because Indiana Jones needed to become uh, more of a character. And we see his growth from just fortune and glory to the guy who actually cares about a world that's bigger than himself. And I figured that was with Ripley all along. But this, as an audience, is our first time to see that here, that she's there is more to this universe than just her being a survivalist, you know, just getting out of this stuff alive. She's a, now a caretaker for somebody else. Else. It's her. It's us realizing as, as an audience that she recognizes a bigger world outside of everything, and it's interesting too that she, as the civilian, the non-military character, uh, is the one that has to make that realization. And I'm curious if Jim Cameron was writing something about the dehumanization of people that uh, have to go through military training. Sometimes, you know, that they're not the ones that are going to recognize, you know, how important it is to save this little girl's life. And Ripley is our character who hasn't had that part of her stripped away from her yet. We're getting to see that for the first time. So. So, yeah, you know, I, I guess it's something I always felt when I was watching these movies. But until you articulated that point, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> this is a big moment for her. Um, kind of moving beyond the character aspect of, of this minute, I think this minute is also really important in setting up a lot of the action that's to come in this movie. There's so much establishing of the space in this minute that is going to come back into play later in the movie, like the idea of moving between floors through the grating, um, the vents as a space that the aliens theoretically can't penetrate. And um, even later in the minute, the, the turbine in Newt's hideout, aside from like looking really cool, I think kind of foreshadows the, the moment where she goes into the water much later in the movie and kind of falls through a sort of windmill turbine, you know, like that. There's so much of the, the way the action happens in this movie, um, I think, is foreshadowed in, in this minute. Yeah, for sure, because this is this is Newt's safe space, right? We're going to end up at the end of the minute. We're in her lair, in her nest, as it's described in the um, script. And that gives her motivation for some of the things she does later in order to, when her survival instinct kicks in again and she has to try to get away, we find her going that direction, right? I, I do have to ask you guys that this is a slight nitpick. Like, what? What is it exactly about this that you think makes the alien unable to get in there? <laughs> it's always been kind of a problem for me uh, that she, uh, we've seen the alien. I mean, the biggest moment, one of the biggest moments in Alien is the alien traveling through a small duct, right? Or it's, I guess it's not that small, but I don't get the idea that the alien has any limitations until until we see Newt able to survive in this little space. Maybe it's, it's it's concern, possibly, you know, that Newt's just something they don't really care about. Kind of like how, you know, Lord of the Rings, Sauron didn't go after the hobbits because he didn't really, you know, if they weren't of concern to him. Maybe just kind of like, why would we waste our time and energy going after this one lone child? You know, I think that uh, there's no physical limitation to the alien. I think it's probably just kind of like, you know, it's it's a non-factor for them. Yeah, I think the, the vents are more about hiding than escaping. It's just a, a place where she can move that they can't perhaps locate her as easily, but once they have been led into the vents by, you know, in the chasing that comes later, it's, it's no longer a safe space. Yeah. It's, it's just kind of, it's kind of strange. Like if you're going straight from alien to aliens, you've never seen aliens before. You're not thinking that the aliens have any limitations, right? You're, 
to me, it's like, wow, they got Dallas in the vent. They move around the air ducts. That was the way they got around the Nostromo, or it got around the Nostromo in that particular case. And in this one, now every other person on the in the colony is gone, right? They they only went after every other child. There's a there's a kid with a big wheel that we know didn't survive yeah. from the director's cut, right? So I'm just curious. I mean, there have been there are theories out there. You know, of course there are. There's a lot of nerd theories out there about this. That somehow she was some sort of bait that the alien uh, the aliens were keeping around. Like they needed one survivor there to draw people. Somehow they understood that, uh, you know, because they tend to be preternatural. Like they tend to understand things that they don't. It doesn't seem like they should. Like how to turn lights on and off and so on. So there's theories that they keep one survivor. Uh, among a large group in order to draw other people in to try to rescue that survivor, sort of like preying on the human instinct to to come to the aid of another human. Uh, I don't know if I buy that. I think it's kind of an interesting idea, but I'm certainly a little bit troubled. I mean, I get it. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that they are, they can't get around the air ducts, but I'm not sure why because they're so incredibly adaptable that I would think with their life cycle, they would some of them would evolve the way they quickly evolve into not growing too big to be in, in an air duct, you know, if they needed to get through air ducts to get people. Yeah. But it's it's a dumb nitpick. I don't actually care. This is one of those, you know, it's becoming a segment on the show kind of. It's it's a minute podcast. We have to talk about these things sort of thing, like where I don't care about it while I'm watching the movie uh, that much. But since we're doing this granular analysis, we kind of have to bring up these little nitpicks sometimes. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because James Cameron is the kind of screenwriter where uh, a lot of people say his stuff is really on the nose. I just think he's a very direct and very logical screenwriter. And maybe the fact that uh, Ripley has to kind of squirm to get through that little hole and that Newt can get through it. You know, the aliens have these giant tubes that are coming off of their back. I'm not sure that they could physically have gotten in there. I mean, eventually they would have found a way to brute force their way in with enough of them. They would have figured it out. But uh, it's I wouldn't put it past James James Cameron to say, like, okay, this thing needs to be so big so the aliens couldn't get through it. And this is, you know, why she's able to survive and live. So but uh, I guess, you know, maybe those tubes coming off the back, I've never really understood what those are other than to look really cool. Uh, maybe as a, a design flaw in David's engineering of the aliens. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but to go back to what Genevieve was saying earlier about this setting the scene or giving us the geography of the space, that's really what's important here, right? We're not, we're not really in a science fiction film here. I mean... We talked about it way back with Joe when Joe Dater was on the show and uh, Susan Kaglinski was on the show. She's a science writer, and we were kind of talking, joking about how, as far as as genre labels go, science fiction is about fifth down the list for aliens. Right? the The science of it isn't really what we're talking about. What's the obligation is towards the action, and and, and like Genevieve said, setting up the geography of the space that's important to the action of the movie. Uh, having foreshadowing the things that are going to happen later are far more important than whether the alien has tubes coming out of its back and can get through the, you know, all that stuff. Again, like I said, it's neither here nor there. Just thought I'd bring it up. Can I say something about that? I don't know if it's going to tie into this, but it is a thought that one of the reasons that I love Alien as a franchise is that not only do they have different directors with different visual styles coming in and adding what they can to it, each one seems to try to, and I'm sure this point has been brought up on, on Alien Minute and before in Aliens Minute, but each one is a different entry into a, a genre, a subgenre within sci-fi. And Aliens is the military genre. It's the war film. Alien was more of a monster in a haunted house thing. Alien 3 
is a prison film, you know, to a degree. Uh, and I, I think that one, one of the reasons it feels fresh, every iteration of it is because the director isn't just putting their own stamp on it, but they're also taking a stab at a different genre with it. And I was really hoping that when alien resurrection came around, that they would try something other than comedy or comic book film with that entry. But, uh, you know, it's um, it, it, it's what keeps the genre fresh. And I think why it's been around for, you know, damn near 40 years is because every entry into it is, is someone really trying to do something different with it, such as, you know, James Cameron's doing here. Yeah, I think with Alien Resurrection, they were really trying to get at that uh, shitty film genre, the <laughs> terrible film genre, you might want to call it. So I think they really nailed that part. And then mm-hmm. and then sadly, you know, you say that it'd be interesting to hear what the audience has to say about this or what either of you might have to say about this to step way away from aliens. But I feel like they're not mi- even mindful of that anymore with uh, Prometheus and Covenant. It's more now it's become franchise film, right? It's become that's the genre franchise. This is our franchise. This is something that happened within the franchise. And I don't get that sense of mindfulness about a subgenre of science fiction or anything like we had with the first three films. Yeah. So that's a little disappointing. You bring that up now and I hadn't really thought about it, but now that I think about it, that's kind of disappointing. That might be a big part of what's so disappointing about it. I, you know, I want to say, I think Prometheus was attempting to do a David lean style, like 10 commandments, like religious epic with it. Now, yeah, I, I say this right now. Uh, I, I like Prometheus quite a bit, uh, but I will agree there are some parts of it that didn't work as well as, as other parts. Um, but Alien Covenant seemed to be like a, you know, a, a man without a nation, you know, just kind of like it was just kind of like, well, what do we need for it to make it an alien film? All right, let's just like, you know, plug and play this stuff in there. But yeah, it is. It's uh, it's more than just a, a film series at this point. It's almost like a, a, a franchise like the Star Wars franchise. It's it's going to continue to go. It's just some money generating cash generating machine, you know, developed to, to, uh, push out, uh, you know, like alien covenant lunchboxes and things like that at this point. So I think at one point in time when 20th century Fox was interested in hiring directors with a visual style, you know, or like writers like Jean Perry, Junet and uh, Joss Whedon, those guys, you know, on paper, they can make something very unique and then they come in and they do not do that. So I think maybe after alien resurrection, they took a, a step back and looked at it as what they wanted it to be. And it was not uh, an artistic film franchise from that part. Uh, from, from that point anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I should state that I have not seen Alien Resurrection, so you know, take anything I say about it. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind that's kind of what I've heard, and hence why I have not seen it. But so take anything I say about the franchise as a whole with that grain of salt. But you know, I think like kind of beyond the bowing to the franchise, it is just. It's partly just going back to Ridley Scott being the one in charge of these films instead of a a rotating stable of directors who do turn it into something a little different with with every film. You know, like even Alien 3, you know, has as many defenders, I think, as it does detractors for how Fincherian it is, you know. Um, So I think just in in returning to Ridley Scott in the the more recent iterations of, of this franchise, it's kind of like you said, taken a step more toward a franchise, you know, where everything is sort of of the same feeling and tone rather than a almost an art a tour exercise where each director brings their own uh, spin to the story. I mean, you could say, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Alien 3, but I have tons of respect for it. And, mm-hmm. you know, what you're saying about Ridley Scott, Genevieve, is true, and it seems as though he's more like a kid coming back to play or, or an adult coming back to play with his old toys from his childhood, mm-hmm. right? 
And it, that's part of the franchise thing. It's like a toy box or a sandbox, as they like to call it, that you're playing around in. And Fincher uh, and the writers and the studio and everyone involved in Alien 3 uh, very decisively just threw the lunchbox or threw the sandbox out or the toy box out, right? They immediately said, uh, fuck that last movie. <laughs> we're going to kill the two characters besides Ripley from that movie immediately because we're making a whole other thing. Now that's simultaneously what I respect most about it and dislike the most about it, but <laughs> that's kind of part of my weird relationship with alien three. You got to respect that though. He was saying, they were saying right away, we'll give Fincher some, a lot of credit, even though I don't think he was quite the auteur yet that he is now uh, that they were saying, we are going to make a distinct film here the same way James Cameron said, okay, Love Alien, love the world it built, and he very respectfully spent about 10, 15 minutes of this kind of making Alien an Alien-style film and, and slowly transitioning into his style. But then he says, now I'm going to make, you know, I joked, or I, I guess I joked, but it's true, when we take that hard cut from Jones, the last survivor of the Nostromo, uh, Ripley saying goodbye to Jones. We go Jones face cut to giant rifle in space. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when we get the Sulaco and it's James Cameron saying, this is my movie now. Thank you, Ridley Scott. Now I'm, I'm making my style of movie and it's entirely his own. And the same with, with what Fincher did with alien three. And then to me, the other thing is the common denominators, Ripley, right? The first three films are, are quality films. And I'm going to say that, you know, despite the fact Sigourney Weaver is an alien resurrection, Ripley is not an alien resurrection. Okay, that's not Ripley. It's technically not Ripley at all, as it's a clone or whatever. And it's not the character that we know. So really, it all begins and ends with her, which brings us full circle back to why this minute is so important. Because that's this, again, in my theory, is where Ripley becomes the character that we know and love. So this is still the pivot. You know, in that sense, I guess I'm arguing that this is the pivotal moment in the entire franchise. So I'm taking it a step further. Even. Well, and, and that's something that I think the best sequels do is they expand on characters rather than world building or the scope of a franchise as they take characters into new interesting places. I uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which was released this summer, I actually thought was an excellent sequel because it's the continuation of all the characters in the franchise, their journey as characters. And it doesn't really care about building on the bigger Marvel universe. It wants to tell the specific story about Star-Lord's uh, relationship with uh, his father. And that's, I think, what makes it a quality sequel. And like here, you know, we take Ripley and we expand on her humanity. And like you said, it's kind of summed up really right here in this moment. You know, I could actually talk about Guardians of the Galaxy a little bit in that sense, but we don't have to go too far into it. But one of the things that made that such a great sequel is that it's not, you know, Star Lords and the Guardian Star Lord and the Guardians of the Galaxy. It's the Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're right, everyone got their own full arc in that second film. It wasn't just him, even though his was the A arc. Everybody had their character type and everybody fit into their role, you know, with the raccoon as the caretaker of Groot and that relationship being the thing as the, the Drax character being comic. He's really comic relief, right? He has this little story, uh, background story, but he's fucking hilarious in that movie and he fits perfectly <laughs> in his character type and he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And every the, the James Gunn being that mindful of all the characters makes for a really good sequel. You're right. Character drives the sequels. You continue on with the world, but it's what the characters do within the world that matters. So, Absolutely. Uh, yep. And since we're talking about one of the great sequels ever made, I guess that's apropos of our conversation. Okay. Do we have anything else for this minute? 
there is a moment at the very opening of this minute where Michael Bean's hand is bit by Newt, and <laughs> that is something that happens three times in James Cameron films. We have it here in Aliens. It also happens in The Terminator and The Abyss. So it's a very strange uh, director's calling card that Jim Cameron has with uh, Michael Bean. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't even think about that. I actually did have a note about the biting, but we kind of moved past that moment. But I was going to point out that in the script, it's Ripley that gets bit. Like Ripley's the one reaching in. Ripley's the one that gets bit. And I was thinking about, again, here's another situation where the Amy Amanda Ripley uh, storyline would create a different reading, right? Like to me, without that, it's best that it not be her get bit. Like it's best for her just to be the thoughtful person that's not reaching in crazily for a little girl. Um, but if you have the Amanda Ripley story going on in the background, it could be interesting because Ripley could be overcompensating, right? She could be over overly anxious to help this little girl. And the relationship between the two of them would be entirely different. And then in the subtext, the biting could be a somewhat of a retribution, you know, sort of through from Amanda passing it on, uh, you know, some sort of resentment from Amanda passing into rip uh, into Newt about being abandoned. You know, there was a whole thing in the script originally where Ripley calls Amanda. She's not dead yet. You know, in the first draft or in the scriptman, I think it's in there uh, that she calls Amanda, who's an old lady. And Amanda basically just berates her for abandoning her, which was just way too heavy and harsh for the first 10 minutes of a movie like this. But um, we could have gotten a little subtextual resentment from a child that would represent that. And that could have been an interesting way to go. In the movie we get, especially the theatrical cut, I think it's best to like have a have that not happen to Ripley. I, I don't think she's the one that should be uh, – Newt should not be aggressive towards Ripley. I think that it makes much more sense the way it is. Yeah, I'm so glad that's not how it plays in the, in the theatrical cut because I, I think I think as it does play, it's more just about, I mean, Newt is behaving like a cornered animal in this moment, you know, and what do you do when you have a cornered animal? You don't like put your hand in its face, you know, you try to, you coax it out gently, you know, and that's what Ripley is doing in this moment as opposed to Hicks who, uh, you know, the what happens to him is what would happen to you if you were reaching at a cornered animal. So I think it just kind of underlines Ripley's presence of mind and how she is, you know, emotionally and mentally better equipped to handle this aspect of the situation than any of the Marines are. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, you're right. It's much more keeping in character. So it's a good cut. It's a good change. I should say. Yeah. All right. Well, if that's going to be it, uh, Genevieve, you want to tell everyone again where they can find you on the internet? Sure. Um, I am the co-host and producer of the Next Picture Show podcast. I am also the deputy culture editor at Vox.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And Kyle, remind everyone where they can find you. Uh, If you like Movies by Minute podcast, you can check out Goonies Minute, Jurassic Park Minute, or Ghostbusters Minute, uh, the last of all. uh, Actually had John on as a guest in one of our best episodes. So you can check me out there. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Kyle Crane, uh, where I just complain about professional wrestling storylines. So. All right. And uh, you can find us at AlienMinute.com. On uh, on our homepage at AlienMinute.com, if you want, there's a, a little digital uh, tip jar. You could throw a couple of bucks in there and help me pay for the bills. That would be nice. Uh, the bills are always racking up over here in podcast land. I don't know if you know that. So it'd be nice if you could throw me a dollar or two if you have it lying around. 
Uh, you can find us also on Twitter at Alien Minute Pod or on Instagram at Alien Minute Podcast. Uh, make sure to come over and subscribe at iTunes, too. Even if you download the episode off the website, it would be nice to have the subscribers. And it would be also nice to have a nice five-star review from you know, if you feel that way about our show. Uh, okay, well, that's going to do it for Minute 47. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow for 48.